Good morning, church. I truly have missed saying that over the last couple of weeks, and I know you are in very good hands. As Pastor Dan brought to you Psalm 139 for over those two weeks, and you were in excellent hands there. Um, we're going to be returning to Isaiah here, so you can start turning to that book of the Bible if you haven't already. C.S. Lewis called it the greatest sin in the world. It has been said to be the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. Someone compared it to carbon monoxide. It's odorless. It might be killing you and you don't even realize it. What is it? Pride. Pride. And the more pride you have, the less proud you think you are. And that's the killer right there. Pride. Are you thinking of yourself more highly than you should? Do you treat people differently depending on where they are in your proverbial pecking order? Do you feel indispensable or do you have an elevated view of yourself? Well, on a small plane, there were only three passengers, a pastor, a boy scout, and a computer expert. The plane was going down, but there were only three parachutes and four people, including the pilot. The pilot announced that he should have one of the parachutes because I have a wife and three young children, so he took one and jumped. The computer whiz boasted, I should have one of the parachutes because I am the smartest man on this plane and everyone needs me. So he took one and jumped. Pastor turned to the Boy Scout and said, well, son, there's only one parachute left. You're young and I lived a full life. So you take the remaining parachute and I'll go down with the plane. The Boy Scout replied, relax, Pastor, the smartest man on the plane just picked up my backpack and jumped. <laughs> now, pride may not be as blatant as announcing your greatness, right? I mean, this computer whiz just had the nerve to say out loud what most of us have learned to camouflage. Pride, subtle. Pride, sneaky. We can easily start to make everything about us. I mean, you're so vain, you think this sermon's about you. <laughs> Actually, it is. <laughs> and it's about me as well. It's about me as well. What is it that continues an argument even when you know you're wrong? Pride. What is it that drives a person to want more than someone else? Pride. What is it that's annoyed when someone else is made a fuss of? pride? What is it that blocks brokenness from happening? Pride. What, would it, what, what is it that would cause someone to walk out in his family and abandon his God? Pride. How is it that a person, even on their deathbed, cling to the defiance rather than call on Jesus to be saved? Pride. Something inside of us would rather die than bow. All right, if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 is we return to our sermon series on why we are here from this Old Testament book of Isaiah. 
And I remind you that Isaiah is primarily addressing two of the 12 tribes of Israel, commonly, though not always, but commonly referred to as Judah or the house of David. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 14. It's part of a, a bigger section of chapters 13 through 23 that speak of God's judgments on the surrounding nations at the time this was written. And the overarching theme of chapters 13 through 23 really is the supremacy of God over all the nations. And these chapters follow naturally the vision of Emmanuel, as we've seen, as ruler of the kingdoms. And they answer the question raised in the previous chapters, can God deliver his people from the powers of this world? And the answer is a resounding yes. The words of Isaiah are clearly meant to remind God's people how foolish it is to trust in nations and in people. God's the one to be trusted. Only he can save his people from their enemies. The first case in point, Isaiah chapter 14. And Babylon would be the one, uh, so we get context here, Babylon would be the one that would take the people of Judah away from their homeland and into exile for nearly 70 years. And even though Babylon was a tool in the hand of God to bring discipline upon his people, God would also exercise his judgment on the nation because of its pride. See, the folly of, na of the nations is their arrogance. It's their pride that will bring them down because they've exalted themselves in the face of God. That will be their demise. Now, back a few weeks ago, now we looked at chapters 9 and 11 and it was there that we saw a picture of the coming Messiah. That's a, a, a foreshadowing in chapters 9 and 11 of the coming of God wrapped in humanity. It, it was a foreshadowing, a prediction of the time when God would become man. Now in contrast to that, as we come to chapter 14, we now see what happens when man becomes God, if you will. It's been said that pride erects a little kingdom of its own and acts as sovereign in it. Pride struts through life in one way or saying, and saying, King me! King me! And Isaiah 14 illustrates the problem with pride, and it isn't a pretty picture. The imagery is powerful. The impact's unforgettable. All right, let's look at the example of pride, an example of pride uh, as we come to Isaiah 14 and the opening words of chapter 14, are really one of hope. It's a word of encouragement to the people of Judah that they will be delivered uh, from their captivity in Babylon. They will return home. All right, I hope your eyes are on it. Chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he'll choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Go down to verse 3. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And so he's saying to them, people of God, you will find relief. This prideful king will be brought down. You can bank on it. And all the people of God at that time will give each other high fives when their enemies are defeated. 
Now, wait a minute. Is that right? Are we to be happy over the downfall of our enemies? I mean, are we supposed to pray for our enemies? Are we supposed to love our enemies? Yes and yes. But as Dan even said earlier in the time of, of singing here, it's also appropriate to rejoice when righteousness wins. Wherever evil is weakened and righteousness wins, church, there's cause for joy. And the taunt here, the mocking lament, is against a fallen king. Now, before going any further, I might as well address what has been commonly accepted about this passage. Now, hear me. I don't want to dismiss too quickly what many church historians and theologians uh, who are much smarter than I am have believed about the one being described in this chapter. But this has been, and you grew up in the, in the church, you know this, this has been a go-to passage along with Ezekiel chapter 28. This has been a go-to passage, particularly these verses, verses 12 through 17 that were read for us earlier. It's a go-to passage to speak of the fall of Satan. Now, if this passage is speaking to Satan's downfall, it's certainly disguised behind the most natural way of reading it. We're told in verse 4, clearly, that this is a taunt against king of Babylon. The king of Babylon. And since it's written in, in a form of a poem, and we don't, can't miss that, it's written in a form of a poem. It's likely many of the descriptions here of this king are figures of speech to get across the exaggerated sense this human king had of his own importance. All right, we may have to disagree, agree to disagree on this, and that is fine. You do your, your work on that yourself. But the example, I believe, the, given, the example given here to us in Isaiah 14 is not an angelic being that fell from heaven, but of a human being. And that's what makes it so impactful. Now, having said that, <laughs> having said that, because our minds can see Satan in these verses, that's not far-fetched either. Paul to Timothy in his list of qualifications for elders speaks of conceit that can trip up an elder as it did the devil. So if we read what we, so if what we read here in Isaiah 14 sounds like the devil, then, then, then what does that tell us? Wherever there is pride in our hearts, we are more like Satan than we care to admit. And he's the driving force behind what's going on with the king, even if you don't, don't want to land there. And the one who might say, no, nah, that's not me. This doesn't describe me. You may be the proudest of all. This powerful, prideful king is held up as an example for us. We now look at the essence of pride. The essence of pride. Look down to the verses that were read for us earlier. This is where we kind of say, yeah, this has to be describing Satan. Bear with me on this. You can do your homework on this. You can do your research on this. I'm telling you where I land. I'm telling you where I land. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Now remember, this is poetic language. It's a lament. This proud king is described as the morning star, son of the dawn. 
Now, some Bibles have translated the words morning star with the word Lucifer. Now, without boring you with the details, Lucifer really is not the best way to translate that phrase. The morning star or shining one literally referred to the planet Venus, but in ancient times it was used metaphorically to speak of human kings. Interestingly, Jesus is called a bright and morning star. Revelation 22:16, suggesting what? That, that Christ's second coming is the start of new dawn, a, a new day. Now here in Isaiah, here's in Isaiah, the reference is of a star that gives way to the sun. In other words, this is what I think it's saying. In other words, this morning star, this bright star, this king of Babylon will have his stardom. He'll have his time of glory. He'll have his, his time of fame. He'll have his time of tearing down the nations. But in the whole scheme of things, it is short-lived. Before the sun rises, he's gone. That's what he's saying. Short-lived. It's brief. And we go, well, when we're living under such oppression, it feels like forever. But in God's timetable, it is short-lived. Why? Because all kings, all nations, all those in authority are subject to the sovereign Lord and his purposes. This morning star must yield to the dawn of a new age when God will intervene and bring judgment upon him. And notice it says the king has, has fallen from heaven. Again, figure of speech to describe how he was brought low. He saw himself in in an inflated way and God brought him down. His fall was a a public disgrace. You all would see it. It tells us down in verse 16. Write it down. You can read it later. It was read for us earlier. But, But you see, God who hates pride will do the humbling. It would be best then to respond favorably to self-humbling moments, right? Because if we don't, God will do it. God will do it. See, no one can make you humble. You may be invited to it, but you must accept the invitation. And often it comes in those self-humbling moments. Moments like this woman that I read about who was waiting in the, was sitting in the waiting room for her first appointment with a new dentist. And she noted his diploma, which bore his full name, and suddenly she remembered that a tall, handsome, dark-haired boy with the same name had been in her high school class so many years ago. And she thought to herself, could this be the same guy I had a crush on way back then, she wondered? But she entered the exam room and she saw him. He was, he was a balding, gray-haired man, deeply lined face. And she goes, wow, he didn't age very well. I mean, look at me. He looks way too old to even be my classmate. Well, she asked, hey, do you happen to attend Morgan Park High School? And he asked, I'm a Mustang, he replied. When did you graduate, she asked. 1959, he replied. Why do you ask? You were in my class, she exclaimed. Really, he said, looking at her closely, what did you teach? (laughs) A pin in that bubble. A pin in that bubble. Self-humbling moment. Have you been given an invitation to be humble? Will you accept it? 
And we don't know if this king had been given opportunities to humble himself at all. My guess is, if he did, he would have blown right past that. Because this, this prideful king here has such an inflated view of himself. We see that as we pick it up in verses 13 and 14. Uh, really is where we get to the essence of pride. And you, you'll likely pick it up as I read. Uh, look with me at verse 13. 13. You said in your heart, speaking to this king now, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He's saying uh, uh, he viewed himself as the brightest of stars. I'll ascend to heaven. Sound familiar? Kind of brought me back to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. People in that day, right, they proudly proclaimed, let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why did they want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens? What Genesis 11 tells us, so that we may make a name for ourselves. That's what he's doing. Well, he continues, he's not done. Middle of verse 13. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. Now, in other words, what he's saying here, that the place where the gods lived, and the Canaanites believed the gods lived in the mountains. He's saying, I will live in the mountains because I am that great. I am a god. And he aspired to be greater than all other gods, which is the epitome of arrogance. The king saw himself as the greatest. His heart was set on reaching places where no one else has been able to go. How ridiculous it is to think that he could be above all the gods they worshipped. All right, he's not through. Verse 14, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, higher than everybody else. I will make myself like the most high. Now, if he didn't cross the line before, he just crossed it. What audacity. This human king, a mere man, could think he could be equal to the almighty God. See, O.W. Holmes said, the great act of faith is when man decides that he's not God. Now, I read this. I read this, and, and, and I thought to myself, that's not me. I mean, I've never gone that far in my pride. And then it hit me. There's a little king of Babylon in me. There's a little king of Babylon in me. I mean, I've never said those words, but I've acted as though it's all, I think it's all about me. King me! <laughs> king me! Might be the cry of the, my heart more than I care to admit. Now, do you notice a reoccurring theme in those two verses? What phrase is repeated? I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times. I think we get to the essence of pride, don't we? See, the problem with pride, it gives a false sense of what we can do. I will. Here's the principle. Anytime we have a stronger desire to do our will over God's will, that's pride. Try that one on. Anytime we have a stronger desire to do our will over God's will, that is pride. Because it reveals our attempt at independence. It speaks volumes of our own self-confidence. I ask you, as I've asked myself, how have you said in your heart, I will. I will do this. I don't care what it is. I will do it. How? See, my prayer may be not my will, but your will, God, be done. But secretly at times, I want my will to be done. Plain and simple. 
And I can go through life saying, King me. And what troubles me about pride is that it shows up at the worst of times. When we should be ministering to others, pride shows up. When someone else is hurting and they need a loving touch or loving word, pride shows up. When someone else is being recognized, pride shows up. Why does it keep showing up? I mean, what's, what's the essence of pride? Well, pride really, if we, if we boil it down, is a distortion of self and reality. It's a distortion of how we see ourselves. That's why it's not wrong or sinful for God to want all glory. I did, I did something in the epistle on this a few weeks ago. It's not wrong or sinful for God to want all glory. He is worthy of it. It is based on the reality of who he is. It's the right estimation of himself. In the same way, it's not sin to take pride in one's child or one's spouse or a job well done. I mean, to appreciate some true excellence is not wrong. Now, if we give it more worth than it deserves, we've crossed the line. But neither is it sinful pride to accept and use my God-given abilities. Yet our attitude must always be, I am what I am by the grace of God. For two months in 1988, and I might have shared this with you before, Oral Hershiser was perhaps the best pitcher ever. From late August through the World Series, he had an ERA of uh, 0.60, which means that his average of runs, people crossing the plate when he was pitching, extremely low. And he led the Dodgers to an improbable world championship. Now, this wasn't the only time Hershiser had thrown so well. He, he talks about while pitching in the minor leagues at San Antonio a, a few years earlier, he had the best statistics over anyone else in the game. Soon, however, Oral Hershiser, a, a Christian, began to see his performance on the field deteriorate. When asked in an interview what changed, Oral Hershiser honestly replies, you know what? I got caught up in the scouting reports, what I read in the papers, how good I was. And I stopped praying. I stopped listening to God. I started going out and doing things I shouldn't have been doing and not having a focus on what I was supposed to do. And he says, it was like God had come down from heaven, hit me over the head and said, you dummy. <laughs> Remember who got you here. Remember where your abilities come from. Consider yourself successful. You're good at what you do. You're making a difference in people's lives. Are your talents and gifts and abilities and skills helping a cause? The word to all of us is to remember who has done all this. We have the example of pride. We have the essence of pride. But how bad is it really? I mean, is it really that bad? All right, we come to the end of pride Come to the end of pride, you're likely familiar with the proverb in Scripture that said pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And everywhere in the Bible, we're told that pride goes before a fall. Example after example after example, that pride leads to destruction, that it's deadly. And here in Isaiah 14, it's a graphic picture of that destruction. The end of verse 4 says, how the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended. But bring your eyes down to verse 9. The grave below, the grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world 
It makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations. Verse 10. They, all those leaders in the world, they will respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. Not very pretty. Someone aptly put it, human pride is but pretty trappings on a corpse. You see, the king, his palace may have been plush. He he may have enjoyed all the comforts of life. His strength and power were, were, were indeed quite impressive. His importance was known everywhere. But in the end, he goes to the place where all human distinctions are meaningless. He may have seemed immortal to many living under his oppressive rule. But the astonishment of all, he would bow to decay. What does it profit a man? What does it profit a person who gains the whole world? but loses his own soul, Jesus pointedly asked. What is the game? You win? And church, in our foolish pride, we can go after things that really have no eternal significance. Is your pride preventing you right now from seeing the bigger picture? In the movie, The Bridge on the River Kwai, the lead character, Colonel Nicholson, played by Alex Guinness, Alec Guinness, is a prisoner of war in Burma who leads his men to build a bridge for his Japanese captors. Nicholson is an officer of high integrity. He's dedicated to excellence. He's a great leader of men, and he's well-trained to complete any mission that he is given. His mission is to build this bridge for the enemy. But he's determined in his pride to build the best and strongest bridge he can build to prove to the Japanese how superior the British are in their building skills. His men become appalled. Why is he building such a good bridge when our enemies are going to use that bridge to move their troops troops by train to destroy our army? So his men began to plot to sabotage the bridge with dynamite and by the film's end, Uh, He finds himself in the painful position of defending the bridge from attack by his fellow officers who want to destroy it to prevent Japanese trains from using it. And there's a chilling moment of realization right before he detonates the bridge when Nicholson utters the, the, the famous line, What have I done? What have I done? He was so focused on his goal building the best bridge to prove to the Japanese who was the greatest that he forgot the larger mission of winning the war. That's what pride does. It corrupts our spiritual vision. We no longer think or see clearly what God is trying to accomplish because pride starts to put us at the center of the universe. You see, pride is an unholy preoccupation with self. We then end up exalting ourselves, serving ourselves, thinking about ourselves, and even trusting ourselves instead of exalting, serving, thinking about, and trusting God. And that's why God opposes the proud. I mean, do you, do, do you really want the Almighty God actively opposing you? 
I mean, you think that's going to end well? All right, let me give you some practical takeaways for us here. Some practical takeaways. First of all, see the signs of pride in your own life. See the signs of pride in your own life. Well, what might they be? Well, they hear some telltale signs of a proud heart, and, and the list could go on and on and on. I'm just going to give you some. Signs of a proud heart could be insisting on your own way. Might be unwilling to apologize to someone you've wronged. Might be defensiveness when people offer you constructive criticism. A sign might be people are getting to you. That's a sign for me. I mean, I'm not saying these others aren't, but that's one that pops out to me. When people start getting to me, what is it? I'm making it about me, king me. Putting others down in order to feel better about yourself, it's pride. Resentful being overlooked, pride. Clinging to your demands, pride. Name dropping, needing to win every argument, grabbing credit whenever you can. Pride is, is, is when you, a sign of pride is when you, only you do those things that make you feel good about yourself. All right, I don't know what it is for you, but, but the list could go on. See it though, see it before it takes its toll on others because it will take its toll on others. All right, see the sign. Secondly, guard your strengths. Guard your strengths. When circus acrobat Philippe Petit was rehearsing in, in Florida, he fell about 30 feet to a concrete floor. Petit rolled over on his stomach. He began pounding the floor with his fists, and he cried out, I can't believe it, I can't believe it, I never fall. And for any person who has fallen into sin, regardless of what kind of sin it is, it always starts with pride. It starts by saying, I'll never do that. Mm -mm, not me. I'm too strong to fall there. Oh, I've got this one nailed. This one, not a problem for me. And when we think that way, listen, we're setting ourselves up for the kill. I ask you, what might be your I would never? I would never. What might it be? Guard that strength. As someone said, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. Thirdly, cultivate humility. You knew that was coming. Cultivate humility. Well, what are some things you can do to help cultivate humility? Again, the list is a mile long. You need to work this out for yourself here. But one way we can learn from humi cultivate humility is we can learn from our mistakes. Even if something isn't completely your fault, you can still look to see what it is you can do differently. What can we do to, to cultivate humility? We can listen to criticism. Not get defensive. Not go into attack mode. Don't walk away in a huff and just say, forget it. I don't have to listen to you. You're not cultivating humility. You can cultivate humility. Listen, you can cultivate humility by choosing to place yourself in positions that don't feed your pride. That don't stroke your ego. You can go, you know what? This is going to do nothing for my pride and my ego. I'm going to do that. That's how you cultivate humility. You mean no one might not see it? Exactly. Go there. You might, might have to choose to deny yourself of getting your own way in some particular situation right now. That's cultivating humility. D.L. Moody said, a person can counterfeit love, he can counterfeit faith, he can counterfeit hope, and all the other graces, but it's very difficult to counterfeit humility. 
Why? Because sooner or later, it will be exposed. Don't fake it. Cultivate it. All right, and lastly, lastly, what can we do? Practical takeaway, crush it every day. Crush it every hour if you must. Crush it every day. Because pride will never go away on this side of heaven. That's the problem with pride. It never quits. It's relentless. And so we need to face it, deal with it, crush it every day. Chuck Swindoll said, Few qualities are more stubbornly persistent within us than pride. See, no matter how hard we try, it seems as though we constantly face ego's tug to feel significant. Pride, it is sleepless, C.S. Lewis said. It's right, it's sleepless. I mean, you're always adding things up to see if you're getting the thanks you deserve or, or the appreciation that you think you should have. And, and you're calculating what, uh, what, what, that what you're doing it makes, makes you look. And, and it's always working at you at, through the night. It's sleepless. It's sleepless. Oh, we must watch the attitude that calls on people to king me. We must watch the attitude that expects everyone to bow down to this monument we have built of me, myself, and I. As Larry Crabb aptly said, I must surrender my fascination with self to a more worthy preoccupation with the character and purposes of God. He nailed it. I must surrender my fascination with self to a more worthy preoccupation with the character and purposes of God. Why are we here? Exalt him. Point to him. Give him the glory. Because God is the one on the throne. Who's king? In your life. German orchestra violinists in 2004 sued for pay raise, claiming they play many more notes per concert than all the rest of the orchestra. They actually added them up. The 16 violinists point to their less busy colleagues who play flute, oboe, or trombone and argue that when you count up the notes they have to play in the symphony, the violinists have to work much harder than all the rest of the musicians in the orchestra. So they should get paid more because they play more notes and they sued. The director of the Beethoven Orchestra argued that the violinists should not be paid more at all. He said maybe it's an interesting legal question but musically, it's very clear to everyone, we are all one in the orchestra. We are all one. The church is like an orchestra. There isn't room for prima donnas. There isn't room for people who keep track of notes. Life is not about us. It's not about king me. It's about the king of kings who is in charge of it all. And in any way, Subtle or otherwise, in any way we are asking others to king me, we need to stop. We. Is there any way that you've been making it all about you lately? It's convicting. Well, Jesus is saying to you this morning, king me. Make me the king of your life. King me, Jesus says. Let him be the king of our heart. Let's pray. So I say often, Lord, if, if the ones here 
listening to this sermon said it wasn't easy to listen to. It wasn't any easier to preach. It wasn't any easier to, to prepare. So you do the business with our hearts. You do the business in, in us, Lord, making it personal. This isn't about finding out and thinking and diagnosing someone else in the room. It's about diagnosing, letting you diagnose our own heart. Like, like Dan ended last week, search me, O Lord, and know that you know my heart. Show me. Show me. And that's where we need to be. Do that work in us, I pray, around this very tough issue. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.